welcome to you all to St. Paul's Barton as we gather to commemorate and give thanks for the life and work of John Milne, geologist and mining engineer, who was buried in St. Paul's churchyard 100 years ago and who is widely regarded to be the father of modern seismological science. We are gathered here today in the presence of God to commemorate the life and work of John Milne and to give thanks for his contribution to widening the horizons of human knowledge and skill. We pray that all these values of service to humanity, which we now recollect, may help us to serve this generation and inspire our successors. Amen. It's a great honor to try to do justice to such a brilliant individual and such a striking and attractive personality as John Milne. In 1907, an article appeared in the Daily Mail, headlined, Do Earthquakes Affect St. Paul's London? Yes, and St. Paul's Barton Isle of Wight. An Austrian seismologist had suggested that the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral was at risk because of the number of recent earthquakes. And John Milne was clearly exasperated. He told the paper that the dome would have moved a fraction of an inch, as would every town hall, church tower or factory chimney in Britain. St. Paul's reels, he said, as all great buildings, lampposts, policemen and sober citizens reel a great number of times every year. The real problem, the cause of cracks, was subsidence. St. Paul's Cathedral may have cracks, he added cheerfully, but St. Paul's Barton in the Isle of Wight is giving way. And like other buildings in its neighbourhood, it gives passers-by the idea that it has been built upon a moving glacier. They are going downhill. I hope I'm not making you nervous this evening. (laughs) This impish comment was very typical of John Milne. He used wit to drive a point home, and he was very happy to bring his adopted home to the centre of the stage. Indeed, Milne brings the scientific findings of the world to shide. He brings into the lanes of this parish scientists from across the globe, a Russian prince, the future King Edward VIII, Lou Hoover, the wife of a future president of the United States, Scott of the Antarctic, 
and of course his Japanese wife Tony and his loyal assistant Snowy Hirota, whose astonishing photographs teach us so much today. Milne was born in Liverpool in 1850, but spent much of his childhood in Rochdale. He went to King's College in London and studied applied sciences, and also was made an associate of King's College for his studies in divinity. But his main interest was always geology and mineralogy. Age 21, he travelled to Iceland, and so he knew what standing on a glacier was like. He then worked as a mining engineer in Germany before travelling further afield to Newfoundland, where he collected skeletons of the recently extinct Great Auk, and with Dr. Charles Beek to look for the true location of Mount Sinai, offering solid geological evidence to test and sometimes challenge Beek's theories. Then, on his return to England, he's offered the post a professor of geology and mining at the Imperial College of Engineering in Tokyo, invited by the Meiji government, keen to make huge technological advances in Japan. Now, Milne absolutely hated sea travel, so he goes by land 8,000 miles in 203 days across Russia, Mongolia, China, sometimes in temperatures below 26 degrees centigrade, minus, below minus 26 degrees centigrade, when his beard froze to his coat. And for 20 years, from 1876 to 1895, John Milne is working in Japan, teaching students at the college, but increasingly fascinated by volcanoes and then by earthquakes. After a severe quake in 1880, the Seismological Society of Japan was formed, and we're very pleased to have the current president, Professor Kato and his wife, with us this evening. Milne delivered the opening paper to that society. He wasn't the first scientist to work on earthquakes by any means, but he realized that seismology needed to be a science, revamped, more methodical, with better instruments, more research, and a huge network of recorders across Japan and later across the whole world. Milne's hard work and his genius make him the father of modern seismology, working with others to place Japan at the forefront of the new science. And to get more and more accurate data, data which he uses to improve building safety and the quality of Japan's transport infrastructure. And then in 1895, there's a disastrous fire in his house. And Milne loses most of his papers. And in July that year, he and his wife come to Scheid. Now, why Scheid, you may ask? mainly because the geology is perfect, with the chalk so close to the surface. It's ideal for earthquake recording. But also because his mother, who was very influential, and his stepfather, want to move to the island for her health. Within weeks of Milne's arrival, he's in the stable block, setting up his instruments and starting the recording of earthquakes in earnest. His network of stations is centred on Scheid. Scheid is literally earthquake station number one. And to it come records from Honolulu, Mauritius, Tokyo and Lima across the whole world. And all those reports are kept 
at the laboratory in Shide Hill House, analysed and published as the Shide Circulars, and for many years printed by our very own county press. So in terms of the recording of earthquakes, Shide was at the centre of the world, the hub of all this activity. And Milne had other interests too, which we must not forget. He published his papers on archaeology and anthropology in Japan. He was a vice president of the Newport Literary Society, president of the Isle of Wight Photographic Society, and he absolutely loved golf. He was one of the founder members of Newport's Golf Club in 1896, a club founded on a very democratic base and a club which retains that flavour today. Last Saturday, the Milne Cup was played for, and his spirit is very much in evidence on the downs behind his house. It also seems strangely appropriate that the club's first clubhouse was next to the Barley Mow public house. Milne was a convivial person, fond of good company and an excellent host. He was resourceful too, training his dog Billy to retrieve golf balls by coating them in aniseed, a trick that was so effective that local children were desperate to borrow Billy for the day for the chance to make some money. Milne was not a big man, his wife was even smaller, but he has a huge personality. He won divinity prizes, but not all English congregations met with his approval. He preferred the sight of Icelandic fishermen praying by their boats before setting out to sea to the satins and silks whispering in a London pew. Milne, one senses, was aware that he'd been given many skills. He'd seen huge suffering, and he was moved to use those gifts that he had for the greater good of mankind. But above all, John Milne was fun. He was an excellent storyteller, and sometimes one suspects that the quality of the story rather than the strict accuracy came first something that you could never say about his science. His Icelandic diaries are full of what can only be called rattling yarns, not always very PC, but you'd have to be made of stone not to smile. He describes getting undressed and ready for bed with a dozen faces peering in through the window into his bedroom, a masterpiece of storytelling. He tries pulling faces to shoo away his uninvited audience, but he only succeeds in swelling the crowd who thought that they were witnessing a strange piece of English theatre. John Milne dies um, on the 31st of July, 1913. It's why we are here this evening, from Bright's disease, and is buried here at St Paul's after a funeral at St Thomas's. And to his funeral came a distinguished assemblage of professors and the Japanese emperor's brother-in-law. The county press called him our distinguished neighbour and kindly friend, one who has made island life richer by his residence and work among us. Professor John Perry said Mill never talked scandal or detraction and hated to listen to such things. He had a power to interest all sorts of people in his work. And another friend, Lady Maybury, talked of a very genial, kindly man, immensely popular because of his humour 
and joie de vivre. At Milne's funeral, an article from the geological magazine was printed and placed in the pews, and it ended with these words. The phenomena of earthquakes are at once his serious study and his delightful occupation. For him, the earth is like an aeolian harp. It vibrates to the influence of every heavenly body. It is played upon by the sun's tropic rays, buffeted by the unruly ocean in its lap, resounds to the stress of the storm winds, is shaken by earthquakes and volcanoes from pole to pole, yet repeats by a tender throb to his seismometer at Shide, the faintest vibration, even from a distance of 12,000 miles away. This offers us a very striking image, but the image that endures for me is that of John and Tony Milne walking together in Shide, an image of enduring love and of delight in over 30 years of married life, an image which brings a touch of the exotic and some glamour to our lanes and an example for us all. The Bible reading this evening is from the book of Job and chapter 28. Where is wisdom to be found? Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in dark gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley, away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travellers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, 
and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, We have heard a rumour of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it. And declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding.
Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. I pray that what I say and what you hear may be true to him who is our friend, our brother and our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. It is wonderful, if I confess a little daunting in such distinguished and erudite company, to join you today for this special service of celebration of the life and work of John Milne. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for our time together today. I always find it humbling to preach at the celebration of a person of skill and reputation. John Milne was by any standards an extraordinary man a man who combined an unusually powerful intellect with huge stamina and a genuine commitment to humanity. He is, of course, as we've heard again this evening, most renowned for his work in seismology, but his interests were much wider than that. He also wrote significant works on anthropology and geology, some theology too. He was a man of great intellect, of high caliber, and simply a wonderful human being. But if I am in awe of Milne, I am even more in awe of the forces of nature he principally studied. In this part of the world, you don't have to travel far to see those forces of nature in action. Every time I make the trip across the Solent, and that's three times this week, I am conscious of the age of this place and of the mind-blowing power that's gone into the creation of the coastline we enjoy today. Here on the island, some of the rocks date back, I'm told, 110 million years, having been forged and melted and remoulded multiple times across millennia. I love the language that geologists use when they talk to lay people like me. They talk about rocks being folded by pressures in the Earth's crust. 
the idea of a rock being folded like I fold a piece of paper speaks, doesn't it, of the unimaginable strength that is latent in the earth, the power it has to create and destroy and recreate. In our second Bible reading, we heard these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. The text speaks of the tremendous power of God expressed through the natural world, bestowing life and taking it away, creating a landscape, and then destroying it or transforming it beyond recognition. Through the forces of the earth and sky and sea, God's creation and instrument, we come face to face with the inescapable greatness of God and the seemingly incontrovertible knowledge that we are subject to his will. So there's something valiant, humble, and if I can put it this way, a tiny bit rebellious about the work of seismographers whose task is not to conquer or subvert this force, but to interpret it and to use that knowledge for the good of humanity. Thanks to their work, we have increasingly sophisticated earthquake and tsunami warning systems in place. Natural disasters in the last few years around the world, in Japan and New Zealand and India and the Pacific, to name but a few, although terrible in their consequences, would have carried an infinitely higher cost of life without the meticulous work of seismographers and scientists in related professions. God may reign supreme over creation, but human beings, following on from John Milne, are learning the mechanics of the power expressed in nature, learning to read its signs and understand its operation, and learning in a very small way to tussle with God in order to save lives that might otherwise have been lost. The Lord, through whom we give praise to God the Creator, our Lord Jesus Christ came to bring life in its fullness, precious life, which is worth securing and flourishing. Today, as we celebrate the life of John Milne, we stand in awe of the forces of God's creation. And we also stand in awe of the gifted and committed souls, including some of you present, who through your meticulous research and creativity 
stand up to forces you can never control, applying your life-giving skill for the good of humanity. So thank you for the honour of being with you today. Together, let's thank God for the wonder of his creation, and most particularly today for John Milne, for all that he achieved and all that he inspired. Amen. thanksgiving for the life, work and influence of John Milne. If the practice of prayer is not your tradition, then do use this as a moment of meditation. Let us pray. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of all, who has given us life, sustained us and brought us to this time. We thank you for the life and work of John Milne, a man of many skills, gifts and talents, whose work and discoveries continue to have relevance to us today, a hundred years after his passing. We thank you for his sense of adventure, inquiring mind and intellect. We thank you for his wide interests in divinity science, engineering, natural history and archaeology, which both challenged and inspired him. We thank you for the understanding he developed and shared regarding earthquakes around the world, particularly in Japan. We thank you for a man generous of spirit, encouraging to others, quick and keen to observe life in all its fullness, as well as a man of humour and friendship. We offer this prayer and meditation in gratitude for a life lived, discoveries made, and the greater understanding of our world gained. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you join me in saying the family prayer, the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 
the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen.
God's great mercy and protection we commit you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen.